The following talk was given at the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at sati.org. All right, maybe we'll do a soft launch for the afternoon. We'll just gradually work our way back in. Um, I was, uh, so I, th- I thought maybe I would just share uh, something not the, uh, not part of my day's plan, but in one of the suttas, the Buddha tells us that there are 11 benefits of loving kindness. If you practice loving kindness, and we assume that this means to to a high degree, let's say, you will sleep well, you will awaken happy, you will have no bad dreams. That's three. You will be pleasing to humans. You will be pleasing to spirits. Deities will protect you. Fire, poison, and weapons will not injure you. Concentration will come quickly. Your face will be serene. You will die unconfused. And your rebirth will be at least in the Brahma world. (laughs) That's the 11 benefits of loving kindness. Some of them more believable than others. But the one story that I love, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Abhayagiri Monastery. It's a a monastery up uh, near Ukiah, an area called Redwood Valley. So kind of a, maybe a sister city to Redwood City. And Abhayagiri is a Theravan Buddhism, Buddhist uh, in the Ajahn Chah tradition, the Thai forest tradition. Oh, it's a particular, you know, realm of Buddhist Buddhism, which is kind of. I will say I'm. I kind of come through that tradition to some degree, though I've never been a monk. Obviously, they um, several years ago, uh, during one of the fire stages, which thankfully we're not having this year, at least to any great degree. Um. There were fires all around Redwood Valley, and actually some of the fires swept up from the south. But then the, the, the monastery is built on a hillside, and actually Abhayagiri actually means fearless mountain. Abhaya is fearless, Giri is mountain. And just as an aside... <laughs> In ancient Sri Lanka, there were two competing monasteries, Amaravati and Abhayagiri. Amaravati is the uh, Thai forest monastery in England, and Abhayagiri is the one over here, their sister monasteries. Can we call them? I guess we should call them brother monasteries since they're for men. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, 
for what it's worth, it's interesting that they chose those names of the ancient monasteries. And, and they, they competed in the sense that the, the royalty, you know, whoever the king or the royal family was supporting, they would like one particular monastery and they would give more money to them and then the other one would kind of fall into, um, not disarray, but you know, they'd lose some influence and then maybe another king would come along who would like the other monasteries. And the, so they get, went back and forth apparently through time, which is sort of odd to think monasteries are competing with each other, right? But, you know, people will be people even when you put them in monasteries, as we learned from the monks at Kosambi who were arguing about the toilet. In any case, during this fire, the firefighters discovered that Abayagiri, because they had a, a very strong infrastructure, that they had a big, they had a, a big uh, parking area, and you know, good plumbing and everything. They they used it as a staging area. And the monks had had to leave, but the firefighters were were staying there, and they're up on the ridge above the monastery. The fire was coming toward them, and they said that they were getting ready to abandon their position because it was going to be untenable. And just at the point when the fire was about to crest the the ridge which would have brought it straight down the hill into the monastery. It's forest, surrounded by forest, and then it would have just taken all the buildings, of course, with it. The fire just, the, 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 head, the chief firefighter told the abbot, and who told me this story, and he's, I've heard him tell it in public as well, the, the fire just stopped and went and burned, and presumably the wind changed, but the, the fire marshal said he had never seen this happen before. He said the hair stood up on the back of his neck when, when this happened. It was like, this can't happen. Like, this is, it's over. Like, this fire is coming. There's nothing that's going to stop it. And it just stopped and backed away. And when Ajahn Pasano tells his story, he doesn't, I haven't heard him specifically refer to the benefits of loving kindness, but I know that in his mind and in the mind of everyone who knows the benefits of loving kindness, we're thinking fire, poison, and weapons will not injure you. That the, that, that the monks who practice loving kindness there very deeply, that their energy protected it. Now, I'm a very you know, skeptical type, scientifically oriented, so I don't believe that, but I don't not believe it, because I don't know. I think we can overvalue science, we can overvalue magic, but at the end of the day, it always seems like it's best to not, if you don't know something, (laughs) I think it's best to take a stance of don't know, because that's a a safe stance. It's actually the the great... uh, Korean Zen master San Sunim, that was his main teaching. His, his meditation instructions were this, breathing in, clear mind, clear mind, breathing out, don't know. 
he would say that and you would be like, okay, yeah. Yeah, that was his voice. Oh, no. So, don't know. It's actually a great uh, instruction. You know, we, we have such a tendency to feel that we have to know. We have to have an answer. And it's actually led to a lot of blunders by human beings uh, over the millennia. When people don't know, when the, you know, historically people didn't understand science, so they made up things for why things happened. Rather than saying, well, I don't know why it rains. They said, well, it's the rain gods right, that are determined. Which, you know, again, don't know. Maybe, you know, that there's all kinds of energies. Or you could call, you know, maybe you just call, you know, the the forces of nature gods. That's not an unreasonable thing. But, of course, you know, beliefs like the earth is the center of the universe, you know, really it was wrong. And it meant, held back science for a long time. Anyway, I, th- I think it's interesting. So for ourselves as you know, in your meditation, to notice how much time you spend trying to figure something out. That, and, and what you discover is that the, the desire to know is a very compelling force. And, and when you understand the Four Noble Truths that say that the cause of suffering is craving, is desire. And you realize that sitting there and trying to figure something out, you can tune in ooh, to feel the, the tension that's created in your mind when you could just say, I don't know. Now I'm planning, I'm going away on a retreat in a couple weeks. And my mind goes into all this turmoil about what's going to happen and, or planning things. Oh, well, okay, you know, I should do that. I don't, you know, uh, and, and you, I don't know. You know, what, what about just letting it go? You know, just let it happen. You know, um, so uh, another one of those uh, teachings that are implied in the Dharma, but not, not always openly uh, explained, the, the suffering caused by the desire to know. Yeah. Well, see, I keep talking, and I just don't have time to finish my tea. It's... <laughs> so this afternoon we're going to go through two more suttas. Um, but I think we should start with uh, some more sitting, because uh, that's where it all begins. Um, any other messages we need? Any anything in there that we need to check on? No. Good. I see a chat. Some chat. Uh, the last message uh, was one fourteen. What time is? It? Yeah, I guess it's before lunch. Okay. 
Yeah. Okay, so mm, what shall we do now? <laughs> so for those who are fami- more familiar with the, again, I say traditional way that we teach uh, loving kindness, you're, you may have noticed that I'm not doing that. <laughs> and um, and it's not that I don't think that's valuable or, or that I don't even use that myself, but I'm more interested in this day in sort of bringing in different aspects of loving kindness of the Brahmaviharas and of, of meditation practice. So one of the things that I think is a useful way to think about uh, the loving kindness is as a partner with mindfulness or a partner with Vipassana meditation, insight meditation. There can be a tendency to, to create these two different types of practice. On the one hand, we practice mindful breathing and insight meditation. On the other hand, sometimes we practice just loving kindness meditation. But for me, if I'm practicing insight meditation without kindness, it can become this dry and at times even sort of self-flagellating kind of practice where you're, you know, you're just observing your mind and then you're just like, oh, my mind, it's so bad, you know, messed up, you know, or my thoughts, why am I having these thoughts? And, uh, and so... I really think it's important to have, as I talked about earlier, self-compassion, self-care integrated into mindfulness. In the same way, or in another way, when we're practicing loving kindness, if we're thinking of someone and and we're trying to offer loving kindness and some negative mind state or feeling or thought arises, it can you know, really take us off that track. And if we're not paying attention, you know, particularly if you're working with like the difficult person in loving kindness, well, you can completely lose the track of the loving kindness if you're not being mindful. So mindfulness needs to be in loving kindness and loving kindness needs to be in mindfulness. So I'm going to guide you in a mindfulness-centered practice and try to bring in elements of loving-kindness and compassion and perhaps others of the Brahma-viharas. Whether you, you can have your eyes closed or just lower your gaze, And are you sitting in a way that supports a balance of alertness and comfort, of calm and clarity?
if we are too rigid in our posture, then we will create tension in the mind. But if we are too casual in our posture, then the mind can become dull, flaccid. As with all the Buddhist teachings, the middle way applies to our posture. Putting attention on the breath, wherever it's easy for you to feel the breath, could be the nostrils, the touch of air, or the chest, or the belly, the movement. Just feeling the body breathing. Breathing is how the body takes care of itself. Brings in oxygen. To nourish the system, the cells. Expels carbon dioxide to purify. Breathing is an act of kindness that the body does for itself. We can feel the preciousness of breath. We've all had moments when we had trouble breathing, whether we were sick or were underwater. Or we got knocked about in some sports lost our breath. Those moments are so frightening. And in those moments we know instinctively that we must breathe to stay alive. His precious breath. 
the Buddha says that mindful breathing creates an ambrosial, pleasant dwelling. The breath is like the nectar of the gods. Resting in awareness of the breath creates a beautiful experience for us. Like ambrosia. We can feel the grace of the breath, like the movements of a dancer flowing rhythmically, moving the body in this life-sustaining flow. So in our practice, when our mind wanders, we observe that, not to get lost in those thoughts, but to notice what is the quality of the thoughts that take us away from the breath. And here we'll often see thoughts, ideas, feelings that are harmful to us. Self-judgments, resentments, As the Buddha puts it, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. How do we meet these thoughts? How do we meet these feelings? 
We meet them with fear, with judgment, with resistance. Or instead, can we meet them with kindness, acceptance, interest, curiosity, These are qualities of loving kindness. We don't feed these kind of thoughts, but we don't fear them either. We watch them come and watch them go. And then we return to the ambrosial dwelling of the breath.
So as we sit, things keep changing. The principle of impermanence is quite evident. And so our mindfulness, our attention also needs to adapt changing experiences. One of these is the changes in energy as we sit, familiar with the hindrance of sleepiness and the hindrance of restlessness. As we become calm, quieter, sometimes drowsiness takes over and so we need to Strengthen the posture, open the eyes, take some deep breaths, engage the mind. Or at times, restlessness takes over as the stillness starts to become challenging. And we need to soften Make the mind spacious. Give room for that energy. Calm the body with the exhalation. At other times, the mind will become absorbed in some excursion of the mind, the mind traveling off into some seemingly vital exploration. And so we have to step in, interrupt that proliferation by drawing it more strongly back to the breath, back to the body, to this room, to the present moment. We may find ourselves swept up in some emotional state. Sadness, fear, resentment. And here we must open the heart, allowing feelings to move through, letting the breath hold us to the present moment, letting go of fear trusting that mindfulness will hold the feelings, whatever they are. Our practice is not one thing, but requires this 
careful attention that adapts to the changing aspects of our experience in mind and body.
All right, thank you. Um, and for those who can't hear the bell, it has been rung. It has rung. Um, I'd like to just open it up for general questions about about meditation, um, if there are any. Surely. <laughs> I have a lot of questions, so but uh, so I'd be surprised if you don't. But then there is the sometimes just uh they aren't questions, they're just the challenges that we face. Oh, Marianne? There's a hand up. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, my name's Kim, and um, this has been very enjoyable. But meditation, how come it is that I can be so disciplined in some areas of my life? and struggle so much to be disciplined with my meditation. I don't know if it's because, I don't know. I mean, I have theories, but I'd like to hear your I'd thoughts. I'd like to hear your theories. Uh, theories, one of them is being an, an addict and alcoholic. I'm looking for instant results. <laughs> and um, it's not instant. It's faster than I usually expect when I meditate regularly that I feel that, begin to see, feel whatever um, differences. But it's perplexed me my entire time of following a spiritual path. So, so when do when do you meditate? In the morning when I I mean like in general or in I mean what what I'll put it another way what what inspires you to meditate? Usually not liking where I'm at. Uh-huh. You know, um, or making a commitment with a friend to um make a commitment to every day for X number of days. Um, it's just, I, my brain, and of course, my brain takes off so fast in the morning, um, and my body quickly follows. It, it what? I said my brain takes off really fast in the morning, and my body quickly follows. Uh-huh. And it's, it's the interruption of that pattern of behavior that I have a difficult time doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I don't, have an answer, but I think it's a, a useful reflection because it's a, it's a common thing I hear from people. I, I'm not sure I, uh, why it's not a problem for me, but I think it has a lot to do with my father, <laughs> who would get up at the same time every morning, goes through his calisthenics, take his shower, put on a suit, go to the kitchen, eat a soft-boiled egg, go to work. And he, my brother went, went, my father was a lawyer, okay, but they had a time clock, apparently, at his office, the Bethlehem Steel Company. And my brother said he was once at my father's office and he saw my father's time card, and that every day he checked in within like three minutes at the same time. And he would always Get, arrive home at 5.20, 
which coincidentally was the same time that my mother's first martini was poured, but we won't, don't have to go into that. He would then say, I'm going to go upstairs and change my socks. And then he would come downstairs in a completely different outfit, having, having taken off his suit and put on khakis and a different shirt. So he did not just change his socks. However, it was the same day in and day out. He was a creature of routine, and it drive, drove me crazy. And I vowed to never be like him, as one does with one's parents. And so I became a musician, living a life of chaos. And at a certain point in my life, I realized when I wake up in the morning, I do this, I do that, I roll a joint, <laughs> I get high, I get out my guitar, I practice scales, I go to rehearsal, uh, I, the gig starts, I have one beer after the first set, I have, smoke a joint after the second set, I have another beer after, I'm my father just in a you know, crazy alcoholic musician way. When I started to meditate, I learned TM, and they tell you in TM, meditate twice a day for 20 minutes no matter what. And I was like, okay. And no matter what, that was before I was sober. Drunk or stoned, you know, sober, whatever. I got up in the morning, I did my 20 minutes, and sometime later in the day I did my other 20 minutes, and it just became a habit. So I, so I think, so, so I, I never feel as if my guidance is that helpful. Like, you know, like it's easy for me. So it's like, I don't know that my guidance is that helpful, but I will tell you what I suggest. <laughs> Schedule it into your day. Put it on your calendar. You know, it's, it's part of my routine. You know, I, I think most people have some kind of routine when they get up. So it's like, first thing, as soon as, you know, whatever it takes for you to be moderately awake, do that. For me, that's a shower. I don't drink coffee. I'll have tea after my meditation. But if I take a shower, I wake, I'm awake. If I, t if I don't take a shower, I'm not awake. If I meditate before a shower, I've just, I'm spaced out. So it's just my routine, right? That's what works at that point. But, but that's the key thing to me is as soon as you're moderately awake, do your meditation. Because just as you say, the mind goes off. And when, with the mind goes the body. And as soon as you start moving and doing stuff, it's too hard to stop. You know, like, oh, it's like 11.30. Well, I'll meditate now before lunch. When does that happen? No. So, yeah, I think routine is the thing I recommend. Now, in terms of, a, you know, on another level, less just behavioral level, the reason I asked you what inspires you to practice is, is exactly what I thought you would say, which is, when things are when I, when there's some difficulty when I'm distressed, right? And so, you know, that's that's why we get sober, is because things are so bad that we're willing to you know make this radical change. And and I think that generally applies. Uh, um, you know, there's that phrase. You know, suffering is this touchstone of spiritual growth, right? 
And it's the same applies to meditation. If I'm not suffering enough, (laughs) then I'm not motivated enough to meditate. The thing is, you're always suffering enough. It's just that you're not paying attention. (laughs) Dukkha is pervasive in our lives. If we really pay attention to our mind, body, emotional state, we will see that we always need meditation. Yeah, and that, but what happens is that that energy of that agitation, that dukkha, our habitual response to it is to try to do something to fix it, like out, change things, get away from it, push it away. And meditation is saying, no, stop and be with it. And that's not appealing. And that, that's definitely part of the resistance to meditation is that we know that if, I mean, I'm going off on this six-week retreat and really the thing that's agitating my mind is, oh my God, I'm going to be with my own mind. And, you know, it's a, not a great place in there all the time. You know, I'm capable of getting into wonderful meditative states, but I'm also capable of getting into completely, you know, uh, crazy, distressed states. And, and so I think the main reason people avoid meditation is to avoid being with themselves. You know? And yet that's the exact reason to meditate, <laughs> is because meditation is the place where we can learn to be with ourselves, where we can cultivate awareness, cultivate kindness, l- let go of the, the obsessions, practice letting go, you know, and and practice creating space between the stimulus and response, as Viktor Frankl says, you know, seeing, oh, that's just a sensation, that's just a thought, that's just a feeling, and just observing. And we have to cultivate all those qualities. But the instinctive response to that stuff coming up is to move away from it, to not meditate. Um, so I, I think it just has to be, we have to be diligent, ardent, and resolute. You know, we have to be committed. And, and uh, you know, again, the reflection on dukkha, on the causes and, and, uh, and the end of dukkha, can be our reminder. You know, oh, this dukkha is not solved by running away. This dukkha is solved by engaging it with wisdom and kindness. He got me going, so. Or I got myself going. Yeah. Or maybe the tea got me going. <laughs> other, other questions? Yeah. I find it, I find it difficult. Yeah, it sounds like it's not on. better I find it difficult um, to really to more in more detail name my my thinking when I'm meditating I it's I'm able to identify very generally that typically I'm planning Mm -hmm. but I want to sort of move into a more deeply into it and and um 
get better at being more specific mm-hmm. about what I'm either thinking or feeling. Do you have any uh, suggestions? Well, it's a good it's a good question. Um, you know, it's a particular um, style of vipassana to like to name the thoughts, right? To, to the noting practice, and there's certainly a value in that specificity and the demand that it puts on our attention. The re- it it forces us to be like, what is that? <laughs> you know. So it, uh, it, it is useful, and I, I don't think necessary, or maybe I should say necessarily necessary. <laughs> like it's one approach. My own practice, and really the where I tend to encourage people to go. But well, first of all, let me just say that. Each of us has to find what the forms of meditation that seem to work for us the most. And, and at different times, those might be different things as well. You know, you might find I need to work on loving kindness or I want to work on this kind of, uh, you know, very precise attention or I want to work with the more spacious awareness. And so it, for one, I think each of us has proclivities that make us uh, resonate more with certain types of practice and at different times we'll we'll feel ourselves being drawn or needing to work with a different form. So my own practice evolved away from that kind of precision which I'm not I'm not really I'm not suggesting that that was even the right thing to do but but just to to say, most, my practice is more focused on a feeling experience rather than a cognitive one. So I would call what what you're talking about more of a cognitive, and I don't know if that's quite the right language, but where you're, you know, bringing things into conscious verbal expression and verbal understanding of what's happening. <coughs> My practice is, focuses more on just how does that feel when I have that thought. So I'm not interested so much in like, oh, what kind of a thought is that, as I am in how thinking triggers these feelings of dukkha. And then watching how those feelings set off trains of thought. Because that relationship it, it's tied into dependent origination you know we're really that because we start to, because it's about cause and effect it's about karma which is what dependent origination is about this leads to that that leads to that this causes that when i stop doing this then that stops happening and so watching that relationship between thoughts and feelings and then trying to interrupt it is more what I'm interested in. So so I don't think it's a... I'm not saying you shouldn't try to bring things more 
intentionally, conscious, and cognitively identify things, verbally identify things. I'm just saying that's not like right or wrong. You know, it's a useful practice, but if it's not really working for you, you, you don't have to, you're not missing out on something necessarily if, you ha- if you're working with uh, other forms. The, the form that I'm talking about is uh, less structured, and therefore r- there's more of a risk of drift, you know, where it's just like I'm just sitting and it's kind of like I'm just like out there, and you know. It's funny; it keeps going off. Maybe it has like an auto shut off when you don't use it. <laughs> Could be. Do we have another? There's another one. How's the other one doing? I just wanted to say that I um. I primarily see myself, I, I think I, I tend in the diluted form of personality type, maybe. Um, and I, I think oh. what, I, what, I, right. what I'm looking for is just a, a sort of more self-awareness and clarity. And I guess I was thinking of, you know, if I can better identify what my thoughts are, yeah. The next step then would be to move into the, the feeling side of that. Um, that's how I was viewing it. Well, and, and that's a really um, a wise and, you know, like um, response to that insight about yourself. So just to clarify for people who aren't familiar with this particular teaching, one of the suggestions, and this I think comes out of the commentaries, but in any case, not I don't think it, the Buddha necessarily said this, but, but later commentaries, that there tend to be three different personality types. A type of person who's what they call a greed or desire type, someone who's looking for stimulation and new exper- experiences and tends to, yeah, to look for the, the new and the pleasurable. The aversive type that tends to be more avoiding discomfort and um, more interested in, in, uh, in just finding stuff that works, not necessarily exploring a lot. And then the diluted type, which is harder to characterize, but... Um, tends to not have a lot of clarity about what's going on. And, and indeed, I think you're exactly right that if, you're, if you identify yourself as a deluded type, which is actually very difficult to do, usually deluded types don't know that they're deluded types for obvious reasons, because <laughs> they're deluded. <laughs> so they, then being more specific and really taking time to be like what is this what is this is a is a really wise sounds to me like a very wise antidote to that tendency so i think it's great you should do it <laughs> so uh, but you you find it difficult or what 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 uh you know what's the question <laughs> let's go back to the beginning 
Is this working? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I guess the question would be any suggestions for how to yeah. get more specific yeah. in my awareness of what's happening. So the way I learned noting practice was the first thing I learned to do was note, identify whether it's a thought. A little bit of feedback. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that's happening. Um, identify whether it's a thought of desire or a thought of aversion. And that just gives you two nice categories. Rather than getting into like it's planning, it's you know, it's judging. It's but but start with just that binary, and that and then and that even that can be tricky because when you want something, well, let's put it this way: when you don't want something. You want to, that. I don't like that. I want it to go away. So there's desire and aversion. They're not actually different, but they they have different qualities, right? They, they I think that I won't go further into it. But but that's I I found that really helpful to just see. Oh yeah. And since those are the first two hindrances, and they're basically the cause of suffering, the second noble truth, then. You know, <laughs> they give you a lot, a lot to work with. Yeah, thanks. Okay. Because I was hearing her talk, um, I was just trying to see um, when these kind of, you know, thoughts come, can they, I just tend to label them as thinking, irrelevant, go back to breath. Mm-hmm. And they fall off of sort, and right. they might come back, but yeah. then again, I say, well, thinking. So, is that okay, or it needs to be kind of, you know, oh, this kind of thought, that kind of thought, and try to label it? And I feel like it's going more and more. Uh, um, there's certainly nothing wrong <laughs> with that. I, uh, again, I, I think it's. It's, you know, it's worth, I mean, the first question kind of to me is, is that working? Does that seem, you know, does it seem like there's value in that, right? And and I presume there is. I mean, if 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 just by naming thinking and coming back to your breath, the thoughts tend to fall away, then that's a really productive way of practicing. There's different... I guess we could say the different strategies are associated with different goals, in a sense. You know, the by naming things more specifically, you're getting more information about your own personalities, tendencies, and that can be useful because it helps you to become less identified or less attached to your personality. So, I find that useful. But I also find that sometimes when I get into that, it becomes this like struggle to like, what is that thought? And 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 it takes me out of the flow, natural flow of meditation, right? Where you're just sitting here and being with the breath. All of a sudden, you're like, what's that? And this is that. And, that, and you're like, you're just, you know, it's all up here. And and I, I want my meditation to be my whole body. 
so that's where i'm coming to like when you are off the cushion that's already going on in your brain you are thinking you are judging you are doing this that and the other but when you are on cushion yeah. it's a little easier because i think the mind is a little thinner um uh, because of the concentration so i i don't know if i'm just trying to see if the practice is wrong if if um if i need to tweak that um into i'm not sure what you'd have to be doing for me to say that your practice was wrong i would say your practice was wrong if you're not practicing if you're sitting down and trying to be present and cultivate wholesome qualities then there's nothing wrong it's just different forms because we can get too caught up in the idea of form and when i say form i mean the the mechanics of our meditation to me meditation is meant to take us beyond form but we start with form because that's all we have you can't just start with okay just sit there and open your mind to space or something you, you know you'll just we need something to start with and the, and the practice of following the breath noticing thoughts letting go of thoughts coming back to the breath starts to build neural pathways towards the mind to naturally be more present to be more mindful and then with time then we can start to drop into more subtle forms of awareness where we're tuning into uh the the subtle emotional energies in the body where we are starting to see how our perceptions um create a sense of a self uh we start to see the the impermanent nature as we say you know the dynamic nature of of mind and body how nothing is stable so we're so we're moving toward these insights and this is where the practice is meant to take us is to insight which then is meant to take us to letting go of clinging which is then meant to take us to liberation awakening so the form is just a jumping off point to cultivate ultimately insight and awakening the question to ask ourselves about form is is this form bringing me more toward that or moving me away from it and one of the ways that form can move us away from insight is when we become overly attached to the form and then it's as they i don't know if you're familiar with the uh simile of the the raft where the buddha says you know you use a raft to cross to the other shore when you get to the other shore you don't carry the raft right that's the form right the raft is the form the form the raft is your mindful breathing or your noting and then you get when there's awakening or or even before awakening there can be a point where you realize oh i don't need this form anymore it's not serving me i can let that go because that's not the purpose and and we can get very obsessed with oh i'm really good at concentrating or i'm really good at doing loving kindness i'm really good at being mindful of the breath 
there's no like Olympics for meditation. You know, you're not going to get a gold medal. It's not going to solve anything. We're trying to get to something else. So, thank you. Yeah, thank you. So let's take a, a break, and then we're going to dive into another sutta. So we'll take 15 minutes and come back around 3.30.